My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, it's official. The house we live in is haunted. The uh, test results are in, and uh, yeah, we were uh, recording a video. Kat was unboxing um, a box from Thrive Market, one of our wonderful sponsors, and we did a couple of different takes, and at different points in the video, at different times, orbs would appear. Well, an orb, and it floated right by you and kind of paused for a moment and then continued on, and then on a different take... It came in from the same direction, but at a different speed and then went off in a different direction. So disembodied uh, spirit yeah. is, is what that is. It, that, this house is pretty dusty. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of pets and pet dander. And so a lot of times that will float in front of a that is camera. Not, that is and not dust. all of a sudden it's a orbs. <laughs> no, well, it is an orb. It is it is absolutely an orb. You know, I love you, how you say that. Like, no, you're wrong. Well, you are. Well, you're wrong. I've watched a lot of orb videos. I know. And I know, and a lot of houses are dusty. That may be true, but uh, totally debunked as anyway. Dust. We got some vegan jerky from Thrive Market, and I was thrilled <laughs> I'm gonna, about it. I'm gonna so. I'm gonna post the video of the orbs, and we'll <laughs> see what the freaks have to say. This is not the first time, by the way, that our house has been quote-unquote, haunted. Well, no, there have been several occasions, and I'm the first one to debunk. Mm -hmm. I remember you noticed that we have a shelf with little elephant statues on it, and you noticed that they all seemed to be moving toward the end of the shelf, like they were trying to escape. And you kept asking me, are you moving the elephants? And I'm like, no. And you just looked at me with this like expression on your face, like, oh my God, uh, this is an unexplained phenomena. Maybe, maybe, maybe the paranormal is real. Is that what was happening? And so uh, to calm you down, Mm -hmm. I uh, did some investigating on my my own and I discovered that 
they only moved on the shelf because they would move overnight. Mm-hmm. And they would only move on the shelf, though, on, on, on hot evenings. And that's because the shelf was right next to the air conditioner. And the air conditioner was just mildly vibrating the shelf and moving the uh, elephants in the one direction toward the, toward the end of the shelf. And, mm-hmm. and so I debunked that. And you're welcome. You slept much better after I told you, no, that's that. No, that's uh-huh. not poltergeist activity. Yeah. That is, uh, that's an air conditioner. It's, uh, it's interesting how you've slid a little bit of truth, uh, which was the elephants were moving and we figured out that it wasn't. Who figured it out? We did. I did. Uh, and we figured it out that, that it was the, the air conditioner you, thing. You wouldn't even um, come into the room. You had to sleep on the couch. Oh my God. You, refused. you just make shit up. It's so weird. <laughs> you totally refused. I think you have some sort of mental disorder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to post, I'll post yeah. the orbs. I'm sure the house is haunted from residents past of 2008 when the house was built. Could be. Yeah, I bet. Also, it could be built. You know what? It is. It's built on an old uh, garbage dump. So it's haunted by garbage? (laughs) Well, look around. (laughs) Oh, I I sense something. It's it's the spirit of an old tire. (laughs) It's it's speaking through me. We'll see what the freaks have to say about the orbs. I'm going to post it. Well, I think it's worth it just because you get to see uh, the incredible products that we got from Thrive Market. <laughs> okay, all right. This is not an ad, by the way. No. So what you got for me? Oh, I go first. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk today about sumptuary laws. Are you familiar? No. I wasn't either. So sumptuary laws are any law designed to restrict excessive personal expenditures. Basically, they're flaunting laws. Oh. Okay, I've not heard of this. Explain, please. Flaunting laws. The term denotes regulations that restrict extravagance in food, drink, dress, and household stuff. It's thought that the principal concern was that the money spent on frivolous display would be better spent on other things like horses or things to better your community. What time period was this? We're getting to it. It's stretched throughout the years. Okay. So Gale Encyclopedia of American Law, the entry for sumptuary laws is pretty short. It says that the laws are designed to regulate habits, especially on moral or religious grounds, regulating the ornateness of dress. Uh, The primary purpose of the laws was to distinguish the different classes of people. And often a person's social class could be determined by something as simple as the style or length of their coat. And so they were trying to eliminate that? No, they were trying to encourage that. Okay. All right. So, okay. I got you. Sumptuary laws are of ancient origin. There are instances that you can find in ancient Greece. The Spartan inhabitants of Laconia, for example, example, were forbidden to attend drinking entertainments and were forbidden to own a house or furniture that was the work of more elaborate implements than axe and saw. Okay. So if you had furniture that was made with something more fancier than a saw or an axe, Mm -hmm. then that was not okay. The possession of gold or silver was forbidden to the Spartans and their legislation permitted only the use of iron money. It also forbade the consumption of certain foods. Okay, but this is just for everyone but but the upper class. Upper class could have whatever they wanted. 
as you went through the classes, you were allotted certain things. All right. Um, and in this case, it was broken down between Spartans and others. So you start out with iron money and you try to work your way up to gold and silver. There's No, there's no working your way up. Okay. You're, I mean, you're most born... class systems were, were designed to keep you in your class. Okay. So you were born into this lot in right. life. So there's no getting around the iron money if you're born in the iron money class. <laughs> For the most part, All yes. Right, I got you. <laughs> okay. There was a short-lived legislation passed in Genoa in 1157. It was actually dropped in 1161. And that may seem like it was pretty insignificant because it lasted a short period of time. But it did kind of kick off a trend that grew throughout the 13th and 14th century in Italy, France, and Spain. Most of the rest of Europe passed little to no sumptuary legislation until the 14th century. And obviously the people passing the laws were people in the upper class. That's right. So they wanted to keep what they had. It's partially, yes. The reasoning was threefold. It was, one, to maintain the money in the upper class systems. And we'll get to that. Uh, two, to be able to differentiate between the, the classes. And three, there were those that believed that it was immoral to spend money lavishly. So they didn't want people, uh, you know, doing all the gold and doing all the chicken and doing all the thread. They wanted people to live more simply and not be so flaunty pants. But they were allowed to be flaunty pants. No, there were still laws Telling the rich to not be so flaunty pants. I don't know. It seems to me when I look at pictures of that time period, there's an excessive amount of flaunty pantness. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I would like to see those photos. They're not photos. No? No, they don't have photos. No, but the pictures show them? Yeah, pictures. Yeah. Wood, wood cuttings, mostly. The city of London in 1281 passed regulation which concerned apparel of workmen. So workmen were uh, allotted a certain type of clothing, and that was part of their pay, actually, which is kind of insane, but whatever. Um, And that really kicked off the whole trend in this part of the world. In France, Philip IV issued regulations governing the dress and table expenditures. But if you look at wood cuttings of Philip IV, <laughs> he is about as flaunty pants as you can get. He set up regulations for several social orders in the kingdom. Under later French kings, the use of gold and silver embroidery, silk and fabrics were strict and uh, regulated heavily. Some of the laws seemed to be specifically targeted at women, you know, the weaker sex, the ruiner of men. So it was thought that when men purchased clothing that was considered sumptuous for their ladies, they had been manipulated into doing so (laughs) by those ladies. (sighs) (laughs) They were blamed for uh, any wrongdoings that their uh, husbands and or fathers may have done by purchasing those sumptuous clothes for those ladies. All right. It all makes sense now. There were even at times sumptuary laws to distinguish between religions. So as Europe uh, grew and the cities became more populated and cosmopolitan, there was increased intermingling of religious groups, uh, even friendships and fraternizing. (gasps) So at the Fourth Lateran Council of November 1215, 
Pope Innocent III and the church officials that he had gathered uh, made decrees concerning the mode of dress for non-Christians. Two of the canons stated that Jews and Muslims shall wear a special dress to enable them to be distinguished from Christians. So sumptuary laws sometimes were pretty friggin' shitty. Wow. Wow. But Christians could wear what they want within a certain framework. However, Muslims and Jews had to wear a specific type of dress. That's right. You wanted to be able to differentiate between them without having to actually speak to them. I see. Some of these laws are kind of um, lighthearted. There were rules about the kinds of feathers that you could wear in your hat, for instance. (laughs) But uh, then you get to these uh, regulations and it starts to get real hinky. And uh, I start to get very uncomfortable. (laughs) Like, oh, oh, it's not fun time story time anymore it's mm. it's oh this the world got real weird for a while there cool okay england during the reign of edward ii flaunty pants <laughs> had a proclamation that was issued against the quote outrageous and excessive multitude of meats and dishes which the great <laughs> men of the kingdom had used and still use in their castles besides the standing regulations governing dress in 1336, Edward III tried to restrict merchants and the servants of gentlemen from eating more than one meal of flesh or fish per day. More lentils, he said. Hmm. More lentils, which I have to agree with. I am pro-lentils. Catwalls, everyone, the controversial pro-lentil stance. <laughs> Uh, This comes from Encyclopedia Britannica. In 1433, an act of the Scottish Parliament prescribed the lifestyle of all social orders in Scotland, even going so far as to limit the use of pies and baked meats to those who held the rank of baron or higher. I can get on board with pushing the lentils, but I draw the line at pie regulation. (laughs) Well, keep in mind, this was probably some sort of meat pie anyway. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Don't fuck with me when it comes to fresh baked goods. The penalties for violating these laws varied greatly depending on what era we're in, who set those laws, um, and whether or not they were actually being enforced, which really has been pretty debated. As we know, medieval society was highly stratified. And it was really important to the higher ups that everyone knew their place. (laughs) So clothing provided a very clear method of distinguishing one's place in the social hierarchy. And because so many people were illiterate, it, it required very little work. Now, did the upper class provide the clothing? Oh, gosh, no. So so not only were they being told what to wear, mm-hmm. they had to go out and purchase it or procure it themselves. Right. Well, keep in mind that a lot of the regulations for these classes would have been what the higher-ups deemed appropriate for spending for those classes. Mm. So you can't afford gold anyway. So it, the the poor people normally wouldn't have been able to procure fine laced goods. But if you got your hands on some, you better give it to someone else I because see. that's not for you. All right. The idea was that you could be seen as an imposter, that you were trying to trick people into believing that you belonged in a social class higher than you actually I did. I see. Several of the sumptuary laws from the time of Elizabeth I in England regulated clothing and enforced the existing legislation passed by her father. 
<laughs> your banjo walking across Yo. the floor. Gilmore the, Girls is over. The accompanying law on ruffs, hose, and sword <laughs> is a combination of the penalties for excessive apparel, along with specific regulations for tailors and hosiers. Oh, hose, like H-O-S-E. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because if there's a couple of things that really piss me off when it comes to regulation, it's hose and pie. Free the hose and pie. The penalty for transgressing on those uh, those regulations in this time was pretty hefty. It was 200 marks, while tailors and hosiers <laughs> who uh, didn't go along with the regulations could be assessed a 40-pound fine, which leads some to believe that these fines were as much for raising dollars, mm. or I shouldn't say dollars, pounds, uh, as they were for regulating morals. Part of the code went like this. The wasting and undoing of a great number of young gentlemen otherwise serviceable and others seeking by show of apparel to be esteemed as gentlemen who, allured by the vain show of those things, do not only consume themselves, their goods and lands which their parents left unto them, but also run into such debts and shifts as they cannot live out of danger of laws without a Attempting unlawful acts, whereby they are not anyways serviceable to their country, as otherwise they might be. Well, I think it's important that we're serviceable. So, yeah. The concern was that people were so jazzed up about these fine clothes and showing off that they were running their families into the ground. And then the only way that they could continue buying these fine clothes or get themselves out of monetary trouble mm-hmm. was to commit felonies. Those those darn kids with their boogaloo pants and their jazz cigarettes. You know it. This is from the Library of Congress blogs. None shall wear any velvet tufted taffeta, satin, or any gold or silver in their petticoats, except for the wives of barons, knights of the order, or counselors, ladies, and gentlewomen of the privy chamber and bedchamber, also maids of honor. The most expensive and prestigious garments made from silk fabrics, such as crimson red or purple silks and velvets, as well as accessories that were admired by the elites, including scented gloves, feathers and hats, and slippers were highly regulated. I didn't even know scented gloves were a thing. It makes sense, though, especially if you were, like, groom of the king's chamber. Right, the butt wiper. Right. I don't think he should be wearing gloves. Yeah, and they didn't have rubber gloves back then. Right. Yeah. But if he were to wear gloves, they probably would be scented. (laughs) Scented with something. (laughs) Um, So, as I said, disagreement about how these laws were enforced is... is a muck because the laws existed in uh, so many different parts of the world and periods of time. It, they were enforced differently and and sometimes not at all. In order to enforce the sumptuary laws in certain Italian societies, they established a number of systems to control the laws. For example, in 1548, they encouraged the city's inhabitants to report on each other <laughs> any and all offenses against sumptuary laws. Anyone over the age of 20 could anonymously report violations by submitting a secret note in the wooden box attached next to the Plazio Publico. So they had like a suggestions box, but instead it was a tattletale box. It's kind of like the IRS. 
now. Yeah. You can get a reward if you let them know about someone who's not paying their taxes. <laughs> you got to report them. Um, in these notes, the informer would have to declaim the name of the offender, the item that he or she was wearing, its quality, how it was against the laws, and the time and place in which it was worn. Sounds like a lot of paperwork. It is. And there didn't seem to be any reward for it other than just tattling on your neighbor. Right. Get somebody in trouble. Yeah. There's an incentive there to just, you know, frame somebody you don't like. I guess. Which I like very much. <laughs> anyway, sumptuary laws, uh, something that I didn't know uh, anything about, but it could vary from pretty lax general rules all the way to if you're over the age of 13, you have to be wearing a hat and you better not put a goose feather in it. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. All right, here's a bunch of uh, really bad business ideas that failed <laughs> spectacularly. Homeless tours. Yeah, a guy thought he'd start his own homeless tour company in 2013. Um, for $2,000, customers get, got to spend a few guided days on the streets with the homeless. Oh, okay. That's, huh. You could do that for free, really. In fact, a lot of people do. Probably not by choice, though. Yeah, that is really tacky. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, two grand. Breakfast cola. I remember that. Pepsi AM. Really? I had never heard of this. Yeah, they put a bunch of caffeine in it. Well, Even more. <laughs> yeah, even more than normal. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, apparently they thought that there was a demand for soda for breakfast. Mm. Well, I know a lot of people that drink soda for breakfast. Apparently it has to be special breakfast soda. <laughs> drive through strip clubs. I think this is actually hitting a, a resurgence. This is happening now, and it's quite successful due to the pandemic. Yeah, it makes sense in today's environment. Uh, I guess for $10 a minute, originally, uh, customers could park their cars where a window allowed them to see the action inside. I don't think this is a terrible idea. Not now. It's like those, uh, what, are, what were they called? Where you put the quarter in and all of a sudden the the curtain goes up and it's like, yay, dancey time. Yeah, like a Nickelodeon yeah. or something. Yes. Wait, how did Nickelodeon end up getting the name for their children's channel from a titty box? Well, I think <laughs> I think that it was more than titty boxes. Was they, it? Okay. Yeah. The Nickelodeons originally were uh, primitive vending machines that allowed for entertainment, not just titty films, mm, but... Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Colgate, frozen meals. Yes, at one point, Colgate decided that they were going to get into the frozen entree business. But nothing really says, mmm, I want to eat that, than like frozen macaroni and cheese with a Colgate logo on it. Yeah, for some reason, those two uh, concepts don't line up mm. in my brain. Nope. Bottled water for pets. Thirsty dog and thirsty cat bottled waters didn't do so well. They came in flavors like crispy beef and tangy fish. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
the podcast now in a convenient travel size that fits in your pocket or purse and in three new scents freshly cut coconut summer breeze and something died in the attic this is the box of oddities mandy sent us a uh, facebook message my last client of the day canceled and things have been super slow since since the covid chaos um, I decided to go eat my financial stress by spending money that I didn't make on delicious fresh baked goods at a local bakery. Anyway, it was super slow and it was quiet in there when I went in. And as I stood at the register paying for my sinful foodie shame, my phone decides to randomly start playing the episode that I was listening to, episode 43. It just happened to be paused at the thing in the middle where you two were discussing weird pregnancy tests of the past. The exact words that played before I realized what was happening were, and I quote, I've peed on many things. Of of course, the guy ringing me up gave me a very strange look as I fumbled to pause the episode again. Now I'm sitting in my car giggling about all the possible assumptions this guy probably had. Hey, at least I got my chocolate croissant. Totally (laughs) worth the awkward moment. Thanks for providing a perfect random moment on a random drizzling day. And love, love, love the podcast. I'm currently re-listening to all the episodes and I'm flying my freak flag. Thanks, Mandy. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Nothing gives us more joy than knowing that somehow we've embarrassed you. (laughs) So we just finished watching season three of Dark on Netflix. Oh, which was amazing. We loved it. And uh, we were really behind the curve on that. But uh, probably a lot of people, uh, a lot of you guys watched the whole thing a long time ago. But being fascinated with uh, quantum physics and parallel universes and oh, that sort spoilers. of thing. I loved it. And it made me think of this story. Oh. And surprisingly, I haven't done this yet. Oh. It's about Atore Mayorano. Oh, man. Atori Majorano. It's me, Mario. (laughs) (laughs) Atori Moriano. He was born (laughs) on on the 5th of August, 1906. Um, He was an Italian theoretical physicist who worked on neutrino masses and was very well known and very well thought of. And on March 25th, 1938, he disappeared under various, very mysterious circumstances. Oh, Let me tell you a little bit about him. You know, Enrique Fermi, he was the winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, also the creator of the world's first nuclear reactor. The Nobel Prize? Nobel Prize, yeah. He has been called the architect of the nuclear age and the architect of the atomic bomb. He said this about Ettore Majorano. Congratulations on your Nobel Prize. Thank you. He said, there are several categories of scientists in this world. Those of second or third rank do their best but never get very far. Then there are the first rank, those who make important discoveries fundamental to scientific progress. But then there are geniuses like Galilei or Newton. Majorano was one of these. For example, according to Wikipedia, experiments in 1932 showed the existence of an unknown particle that uh, was suggested to be a gamma ray. Majorana was the first to interpret correctly the experiment as requiring a new particle that had a neutral charge and a mass about the same as the proton. The particle is, of course, the neutron. Enrico Fermi 
told him to write an article about it, but Majorano didn't bother, and so James Chadwick uh, proved the existence of the neutron by experiment later that same year, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize. Majorano was known to not be really interested in getting credit for his discoveries. He was never seeking any, any credit. In his entire life, he only wrote nine papers on his uh, discoveries, but he was instrumental in, in some of the early quantum physics research. Do you think that he had like imposter, <laughs> imposter syndrome? So he was like, I am a genius and I'm learning all these things, but don't look at me. <laughs> you know, someone else can write about it. God. Yeah. If I write about it, people will figure out I'm not a genius. But at Fermi's urging, Mariano left Italy early in 1933 on a grant from the National Research Council. In Germany, he met Werner Heisenberg. In letters, he subsequently wrote to Heisenberg. Mariano revealed that he had found in him not only a scientific colleague, but a warm personal a friend. A lover. Um, the, now, this is about the time the Nazis had come to, to uh, power in Germany, and Majorano arrived at that very moment. He worked on a theory of the nucleus, which in its treatment of exchange forces represents a further development of Heisenberg's theory of the nucleus. He also traveled to Copenhagen where he worked with Niels Bohr, another Nobel Prize winner. Nobel. Yeah. And, Nobel. And a friend and mentor of Heisenberg. So in the fall of 1933, he's doing all this quantum physics stuff really early on. He returned to Rome in poor health. He developed acute gastritis and when he was in Germany. Was and, it from eating more than one flesh or fish per day? And he was also apparently suffering from nervous exhaustion. He was put on a strict diet. He grew reclusive. He became harsh in his dealings with family. So he goes pretty quickly from this promising young physicist uh, who many felt was on the same level as like Einstein to becoming a hermit. For nearly four years, he, he shot himself off from friends and stopped publishing. During these final years, he wrote a few small works on geophysics and electrical engineering and mathematics. He had become a full professor of theoretic physics at the University of Naples in 1937, and they just let him in. They didn't even interview him. They just said, hey, come here, do this. Please. His last published paper in 1937 was in Italian, and it was an elaboration on a systematical theory of electrons and protons. Majorano predicted that uh, there should be particles that are their own antiparticles. Basically, what all of this says is that he, it, he predicted that a stable particle could exist in nature that was both matter and antimatter. In our everyday experience, there is matter, of course, which is everywhere you look because, well, it's the universe. And then there's antimatter, which is very rare. Should matter and antimatter meet, they would both annihilate, disappearing in a flash of energy. Well, Majorano disappeared in a flash Maybe not of energy, but it was certainly unknown circumstances. He boarded a boat. This was March 25th, 1938. Despite several investigations, his body was never found, and his fate is still uncertain. He had apparently withdrawn all of his money from his bank prior to making this trip. Do, do they know where he was going on this boat? Was it a nice boat or kind of a dinky boat? It was a nice boat. He was going to Palermo. 
He may have traveled there hoping to visit his friend, uh, one of his friends, who was a professor at the university there, but uh, that professor at the time had gone to California, so that seemed unlikely. And before he left, he sent a note to Antonio Corelli, director of the Naples Physics Institute. Dear Corelli, I made a decision that has become unavoidable. There isn't a bit of selfishness in it, but I realize that what trouble my sudden disappearance will cause you and the students. For this as well, I beg your forgiveness, but especially for betraying the trust, the sincere friendship, and the sympathy you gave me over the past months. I ask you to remember me for all those I learned to know and appreciate in the Institute. I will keep fond memory of them all, at least until 11 p.m. tonight. Yeah, that sounded pretty weird. So, and then he he gets on this boat and then he, he just disappears. He gets on the boat, but he doesn't get off the boat. Witnesses saw him getting on the boat. They, nobody saw him get, he didn't get off. So what happened? Did he fall overboard? Maybe. There's the hypothesis of uh, suicide. The note Mm -hmm. sounded kind of like, well, it's all coming to an end. But then again, not really. And why would he take all of his money with him? Exactly. What, that doesn't line up. So there's another hypothesis that he was kidnapped or murdered to keep him from participating in the construction of the atomic bomb for Germany. Oh. But nobody knows for sure. What we do know is it seems as though... In 1958, exactly 20 years after he disappeared, he suddenly reappears in Buenos Aires. Interesting. And and it looked as though he hadn't aged a day. Wait, what? Since he was last seen getting on the boat in 1938. Well, you know, that South American weather, it's uh, (laughs) a... Good for aging. So, so now you're starting to maybe understand why watching Dark reminded me of this story. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't a 33-year difference. No, it's but... 20 years. Exactly. <laughs> in March of 2011, the Rome Attorney's Office announced an inquiry into a strange statement by a witness about meeting with Majorona in Buenos Aires in the years after World War II, in which he claims that Majorona disclosed a number of major scientific discoveries to him. The witness claimed that when he went back to meet with Majorona again for a second time, he couldn't find him, that he had disappeared, and therefore could not provide more details about the scientific discoveries. On June 7th in 2011, Italian media reported that law enforcement had analyzed a photograph of that man taken in Argentina in 1958, finding 10 points of similarity with Majorona's face, they stated the picture was almost certainly Majorona, who had vanished 20 years before the picture was taken. The odd thing was, Majorona looked exactly the same age as he did in the picture from 1958. It's all about sunscreen, guys. So even though the photo analysts said that uh, this was most certainly the same guy, they were not able to... Um, reconcile how come he hadn't aged or did not appear to age in in 20 years. That's super bizarre. And it's not like, I mean, I wouldn't imagine it was a situation where someone's like, ooh, I happen to look a lot like this guy who disappeared 20 years ago Mm. halfway across the world. I should totally pretend to know some physics stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't seem like it's going to pay out. Well, rumors, of course, have been swirling around about his disappearance ever since the very moment he failed to step off the ship. 
Some people believe he deliberately placed a decoy on the boat and then escaped to Buenos Aires to get away from what was going on during the war. And and that's a plausible theory. Others think the boat trip was simply a fabrication of many people that he left behind, although there were many witnesses that, uh, that saw him get on the boat. No one knows his true fate. Nobel Prize winner Enrico Fermi, again, when discussing Majorona's disappearance, famously said, quote, Ettore was too intelligent. If he had decided to disappear, no one will be able to find him, not in this time or any other. Oh, wow. So, we don't know, but interesting nonetheless. Probably time travel. Yeah. Well, you know who has a great theory about this is the knack. No, that's that's my Sharona. My Arona. Any that's what I got for you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for leaving um, the nice reviews. Yeah. We appreciate that. That really helps us grow yep. the show. We've seen a lot of new listeners popping on, and we love it. And thank you so much for joining us. And uh, continue, please, telling your friends and family and forcing us upon them. Yes, do that. We could finally get our new chairs. <laughs> guys. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions, and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.